us this morning, and you have children, uh, and if you would like for them to join into uh, their gospel project curriculum, uh, you can head out the back doors at this moment. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Shing. I serve on staff here at Church on Mill with the college ministry, and I work uh, with international students. I'm thankful for the pastors for allowing me to share the word with you this morning. This morning we'll be in the book of 1 Samuel again. Uh, We'll be looking at chapters 27 and 28, so if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can grab the one in front of you and turn to page 143. Uh, And as you turn there, I just want us to start thinking about um, desperate times. The title of our sermon this morning is Desperate Times, Dumb Decisions. And as we talk about desperate times, I just want to share with you one of the most pressure-filled, backs-against-the-wall, desperate moments in history. And just think about this for one second as you're flipping to 1 Samuel. The setting is Western Europe in 1940. Germany has already invaded Poland, and now it's making its advance through the Netherlands. And they continue on through Belgium. German army continues to blitz through Western Europe and rolls through France as well. The French and British armies that were seeking to slow the German advance were caught off guard by the German tactics. And all they could do was retreat. They kept retreating and retreating until they were pinned back onto the beaches of Dunkirk, France. In front of the French and British armies were the quick-moving German army Behind them was the body of water that we know as the English or the British Channel, or English Channel, if you, if you prefer that. And if you think about the situation that the French and British armies were in, they literally had their backs against the wall. And what would be the results? Would a significant portion of the French and British armies be wiped out? And if they're to be wiped out, who would be stopping Germany? However, we know that the Germans did not win the war. The actions that took place in Dunkirk played a vital role in that. The British had banded together and cobbled together more than 800 boats, ships, yachts, tugboats, fishing trawlers, everything, whatever they had. And they brought all those boats across the English Channel to rescue the trapped soldiers. And over the course of a week, the boats dodged bombardment, they dodged mines, they dodged sandbars, and evacuated almost 340,000 troops. In this desperate situation, and the subsequent rescue, would later be called a miracle of deliverance by Winston Churchill. A miracle of deliverance. This miracle of deliverance would be attributed to the valor skill, and service of those involved. In chapter 27 and 28 of 1 Samuel, our passage for this morning, we see our two main characters, again, David and Saul. And they're in a similar situation as the Allied forces faced in 1940. They're in desperate situations. They have their backs against the wall and they're looking for somewhere to turn, for safety, for hope for guidance, for a miracle of deliverance. And we would hope that these two characters, since they're anointed kings, both of them, right, that they would look to God 
for their deliverance. But these are dark chapters. They don't look to God at all. It would be much like the British, right? And that they would seek to find answers by their own strength, their own skill. In their desperation, David and Saul make dumb decisions. Neither of these two men seek their deliverance nor their hope in God. That's the theme for our text this morning. That apart from God, there is no hope of deliverance. So hopefully you've turned to 1 Samuel chapter 27. If you just look with me here now in verse 1. This is what it says. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul, and there is nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. In the previous two chapters, we see that David has learned his lesson about justice through his interaction with Abigail. And instead of killing Saul when he has a chance, he seeks to make peace. And these are the words that Saul speaks in the previous chapter as they agreed to make peace. And Saul says, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Saul, as we know, is not the most honorable person. And David would certainly have reason to doubt the truce that was agreed upon. However, that sentiment would not really be anything new, right? We've seen all the events that have happened in 1 Samuel. So what is it that triggers David's desperation that he would run to Philistia, that he would run to Israel's enemy? In this passage, though, we catch a glimpse of that turmoil that is plaguing David. You can see what David's feeling, what his heart is telling him says here in verse 1, he is worried that he would perish. Or if we read in the NIV version, be destroyed. Or even more literally, David is worried that he would be swept away. And he is worried that there is no more good for him if he remains in Israel. And that's despite all that he has experienced so far in terms of God's deliverance and God's promises. David is still deeply convinced Saul would find a way of hunting him down and sweeping him away for good. You can imagine, though, that in this moment of doubt and weakness, David does have real concerns. David is looking out at the 600 men that he commands and their families. He's looking out and he sees the two wives that need to be cared for feels the pressure to find a place for them to lay their heads after months, after years of running. Though David is the anointed king, he's not the perfect king. David makes a dumb decision as he looks for his miracle of deliverance. He does not look to the Lord for deliverance, but instead listens to his own heart. thinks his own cunning plans are the way to deliver himself 
from this whole entire mess. Let me pick up the story again here in verse 2. Verse 2 says, So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. When it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. You see that David has indeed made it over to the Philistines. He's come under the rule of their king, Achish. The narrator doesn't give us all the details of this transaction. The narrator doesn't give us the details of who this dude Achish is, right? Remember, there is an Achish in chapter 21. David pretended he was a lunatic to escape from him. We don't know if this is the same guy, but what we do know and what we see here in verse 4 is that David's dumb decision in seeking hope and deliverance seems to have worked. Saul has stopped chasing him. The dumb decision that David made actually seems to have given him exactly what he has desired. Maybe this dumb decision was a brilliant decision after all. We see even more in verse 5 to 7. David has found favor with the king. The king gives David and his followers a town called Ziklag to live in. Maybe David himself was able to bring forth the miracle of deliverance by his own hand. Looking at verses 8 to 9, see that this plan of deliverance that David has concocted actually starts to fall apart. It would appear that as a part of David and his followers living under Philistine rule would mean that they would need to function as raiders. Therefore, David and his men made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. And he would strike the land, wiping out everything and everyone except for the spoils of war. And as you read verse 8, the mention of the Amalekites might trigger your brain to what has happened in chapter 15 and that Saul failed to wipe out the Amalekites. You think, well, maybe David's actions actually aren't that bad. And it's easy to justify David's actions that he's obedient where Saul was not. However, that's not the case. David keeps the spoils of war much like Saul did. And further evidence that David is doing something far, far outside what God has asked in verses 10 to 12. In 10 to 12, we see as David reports the happenings of the raids to Achish the king, he says he raided against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of the Jeremelites or against the Negev of the Kenites. You notice that there's no mention of the Geshurites the Gerzites, the Amalekites. What David is telling the king is that he was raiding Israelite territory. He wants Achish to believe that he was a complete turncoat. And in an effort to preserve the facade, David has ruthlessly wiped out everyone. Take a look at verse 11 with me. He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. 
And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. At this point in the narrative, we see that David is in deep. In his effort to find hope and deliverance, David is now a raider who must kill everyone in towns and villages in an effort to keep his story together before the Philistine king. And he did this for as long as he lived in Philistine territory. 16 months total. The running from Saul has now turned into hiding the truth from the Philistines. If we not think that David's decision proved to be foolish enough, Achish, as we read, has made the decision to make David his trusted associate. So trusted that he would call upon David to fight with him in battle. This is what we read as we move into chapter 28. In 28, we see the Philistines are gathering for yet another battle against Israel. And Achish says this, You must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, vaguely, Then you'll see for yourself what your servant can do. Achish replied, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. You can imagine the position that David is now in, right? He must now reveal the lie that he had been living, which would lead to severe consequences. Alternatively, David must join the enemy in fighting against the nation that he was to be king of one day. Again, we see so clearly that even though David is the anointed king, he's not the perfect king. And have you noticed that even though David is described as a man after God's heart. There is no mention of God anywhere in these passages here. Neither are there any psalms in relation to these events extolling the praises of God. We know that David has written many psalms and they extol the praises of God and he waits upon the Lord. There's nothing here. The conclusion that we come to is that David is made up of much of the same stuff that we are. He's a sinner, just like you and I. And in his own sinfulness, he sought his miracle of deliverance, he sought his hope, he sought his safety in his own strength. Look for his miracle of deliverance and his cunning plan, which ultimately led him to the Philistines. And again, apart from God, there is no hope or deliverance. And we see that here of David, who's now trapped in the proverbial rock in hard place. He has moved from one desperate situation to another. As we transition to the second half of our passage this morning, we see that the writer has left us hanging. The story switches. The story of David gets paused here and actually gets picked up again in chapter 29. In 29, we see that God has not abandoned David and God shows up on the scene and delivers his anointed through his providence. Through God's providence, not David's. But we shouldn't jump too far. Right? And the story is paused here. And the story now picks up with Saul. If you want to imagine this as we're watching this play out on a TV screen, you know, this trouble that David's in, it's like breaking news. 
David has left Israel and gone over to the Philistines. But then there's more breaking news. The breaking news interjects the breaking news in that there is something far worse than David simply going over to the Philistines. And that Saul, his predicament, he's in far worse trouble. That's what the writer is trying to get at here by pausing this narrative for us. So let's take a look at the story now with Saul, beginning in verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. So this new section centers around Saul, and it begins much like the events of chapter 25 did, the announcement of the death of Samuel. Did the narrator make an error here and just repeated himself? I don't think so. I think the writer is doing this for two reasons. First, this detail that Samuel is dead is pertinent to what, has, what happens here with Saul. But also, if you recall, when Samuel died, David's left without his guidance. And what does he do? Where does he go? As we see the result of that in chapter 27, David's kind of off the rails here. And this is, I think, almost the same thing here with Saul in that it's a pivot point. Now that Samuel is gone, where does Saul go? What does he do? Let's resume in verse 3. When Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land, the Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. Verse 4, we seem to again get a random detail that Saul had put the fortune tellers and those who speak with the dead out of the land. But again, this detail is of great importance as we move through the rest of this narrative. And here in verse 4, we also get word that the Philistines, with David fighting on their side, are assembling for battle against Saul in Israel. The location of Shunem would seem to indicate that this is not a minor border skirmish. If we imagine Israel as like a spearhead, right? This would be an attempt by the Philistines to cut off the tip of the spear. And when Saul receives news that this is happening, he became, as it says in verse 5, afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. Do you notice the similarities of the situations of Saul and David? They're both in desperate situations. And they both convinced themselves of their impending doom. David seeks his miracle of deliverance through his plan to run to Philistia. Where will Saul seek his? Let's read on here in verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And the servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And he came to a woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by spirit and bring up for whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know that Saul has, what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. 
Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. In those days, the Lord spoke through various means, including prophets and priests who had a tool of sorts called Jerom. However, as we know, and as we read in verse 3, Samuel the prophet is no longer around. And also, as we remember back in chapter 22, there are no priests around either. For Saul has slaughtered all of them. And Saul here, even then, still makes an inquiry of the Lord. At least outwardly. Outwardly, it seems that he's asking truly of the Lord. But make no mistake, this is not a serious attempt to ask God for help. This is no serious attempt for repentance and for deliverance from God. This is rather more of the same religiosity that we have seen in numerous instances before. This is confirmed by the writer of 1 Chronicles. And the writer of 1 Chronicles says this, He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. There's a theologian, and some of you know, Don Carson, he summarizes the motivations of Saul so aptly. This is what he writes, quote, The heart of Saul's sin is what it has been for a long time. He wants a domesticated God, a God like the genie in Aladdin's lamp, one pledged to do wonderful things for him as long as he holds the lamp. He somehow feels that David now holds the lamp and wishes he could get the power back. But he does not perceive that the real God is to be worshipped, reverenced, obeyed, feared, and loved unconditionally. And as we look down this passage, even though Saul had put out all the mediums and sorcerers and necromancers, people in his court knew where to find one for him to consult. And the irony gets even better. Saul, the king, disguises himself goes to the medium at night and swears to her by the Lord nonetheless that no harm would come to her for her practicing sorcery. In Saul's desperation and search for a miracle of deliverance, he makes a dumb decision. He does not consult the Lord, but instead puts his hope in a medium, a witch. And as all this plays out, we can hear that familiar refrain, right? Apart from God. There's no hope. Deliverance. Let's continue on. Verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And a woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? The woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. He bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. 
And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and as God has turned away from me and answered me no more, either by prophets or by dreams, therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy, the Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. And moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines. Tomorrow, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Just imagine the horror the woman must have felt when she saw Samuel, right? Well, first, I mean, she must have realized the king of all people was duping her into performing an illegal activity. Then she must have felt even more frightened by what was happening in front of her. The raising of a spokesperson of God through dark magic. However, this is exactly what God has allowed to happen as to confirm Saul's predicament. Saul was indeed far away from God, and he had no true desire to repent and show a contrite heart. And that's why Samuel himself is asking, why me? Because the person Saul should have ran to was to God himself. Samuel doesn't give Saul any new words. He doesn't give Saul any hope or the guidance that he was so seeking as he contacted the dead what Samuel tells Saul is exactly what was told in chapter 15. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord has done this thing to you. It is clear and obvious in Saul's desperation. He made the dumb decision to look for deliverance through the work of a medium, through the work of a witch. He would not find deliverance there. And all he receives is the reaffirmation of the judgment pending to him for his sin. Apart from God, there's no hope for deliverance. Before we finish the chapter, I feel like we need to pause here for just a moment and address the issue of the medium, you know, these necromancers, the sorcerers. It's possible that one could look at this and conclude that God has allowed for Saul to be confirmed in his judgment through a medium, so it's okay for us to utilize necromancers and mediums as well. And even some of you, before you tune me out completely, or just like think necromancers and, and black magic, it's all a joke. It's actually something we face every day in our lives. After church, you could actually walk down the street and consult one if you so wanted to. But the Lord is abundantly clear in how we're supposed to interact with mediums and sorcerers. You don't! We read this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And this is why some of the mediums were cast out of Israel, as we see in verse 3. If you remember, Saul's kingship, not all of it was terrible. And there was hope in the beginning. Maybe that's when some of these necromancers were cast out. 
Anything else we read in the New Testament, we read that we're supposed to avoid worshiping idols and temples. and This is kind of the same thing, right? And why would you do this? Why should we avoid this? Is this not all harmless? Is our Ouija boards and tarot cards, you know, they're just a party trick. They're to entertain, to make fun, to scare our friends. God commands us to avoid necromancers and mediums, not because they're a party trick or because they hold some sort of secret knowledge. And neither is it because they're actually able to speak to the dead. Behind all of this, demons and evil spirits, dangerous stuff that we must not involve ourselves with. And that's the mind-blowing thing, right? Even with this knowledge Saul, in his desperation, still makes the decision to seek his miracle of deliverance through a witch. What we read here is the beginning of the end for Saul. In the last handful of verses of our passage this morning, we see that Saul is now frozen with fear. He's filled with fear that the Philistines and David are encamped across the valley. Filled with fear that there is no word or guidance for him. Filled with fear that his judgment for his sin and his disobedience would soon come. There was no hope or deliverance for Saul. And even more irony, Saul, who would not listen to God, would willingly listen to his servants to the medium as they seek to comfort him. And as the medium sought to offer comfort and solace to Saul, she prepares a last meal of sorts for him. The meal that she prepares is extravagant and one that many commentators point out is fit for a king. Only Saul was not fit to be king. And though he still retained the title it would only be for a little while longer. As we wrap up this narrative, what are we supposed to do with this, right? These are dark times for God's anointed kings. In church, I think it's imperative to know and to remember the main theme from our text this morning. That apart from God, There is no hope. Deliverance. You ask yourself, last time you faced a desperate situation, where did you look for your miracle of deliverance? We can fall in the same trap as David did and look to other things to save us. We'll often look at our own strength, our own cunning plans to save us from our troubles. To go deeper in our hearts, we are often convinced to take action because we distrust the promises of God. We think that the things of the world, our own smarts, are far better than the goodness of God, the hope and deliverance that He has promised in the Gospel. We allow ourselves to get into such trouble because we tune our hearts and minds to the unhelpful things of our culture, the things of the culture telling us things are contrary to the Word. we allow ourselves to be tuned to the lies our sinful hearts and minds tell us. We as sinners are prone to listening to the terrible things that we tell ourselves. 
Do you remember the words that started this whole entire section this morning? Then David said in his heart. In church, let us not fall into this trap. Instead, let us convince our sinful selves otherwise and that God has said and that God has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Tell and preach to yourself, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We need to remind ourselves of truths like these daily. And remind ourselves of the promises of God's Word. We fall out of practice in doing this. Maybe for some of us who are believers even, we just don't do this. We live somewhat apathetic lives, right? Each and every day, ride the wave. But we've got to preach this to ourselves. And as a way of reminder, or maybe even as an example, if you've never done this, I want to share a quote from Jerry Bridges of how we can do this each and every day to remind ourselves of the promises of God the true hope and deliverance that we can have in Him. It says this, quote, I begin each day with the realization that despite my being a saint, I still sin every day in thought, word, deed, and motive. If I'm aware of any subtle or not so subtle sins in my life, I acknowledge those to God. Even if my conscience is not indicting me for conscious sins, I still acknowledge to God that I have not even come close to loving Him with all my being or loving my neighbor as myself. I repent of those sins. Then I apply specific scriptures that assure me of God's forgiveness to those sins I have just confessed. I then generalize the scripture's promises of God's forgiveness to all my life and say to God words to the effect that my only hope of a right standing with Him is That day is by Jesus' blood shed for my sins and his righteous life lived on my behalf. This reliance on the twofold work of Christ for me is beautifully captured by the hymn, The Solid Rock, of these words that say, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. End quote. Friends, Realize that we will face doubts and hardships in our life. That's a certainty. And when they come, let us look to God to find our hope and deliverance. We see that with David, even in his doubt and dumb decision, later on in chapter 29, God keeps His promise and upholds His anointed. And He will do the same for you. He has called you out of darkness into light and He will keep you and hold you. That is the truth found in our Bible. It's the truth that we can live knowing and putting our hope in. But even as we speak of all this, know that there is an even more serious situation to be in. It's far more serious than wrestling with doubt and and the promises of God in the midst of our desperate times. And that's to be found outside of God completely. This is the example we see with Saul. We see Saul, a man who is steeped in religiosity, a man who asks of the Lord and pays lip service to the Lord in his own convenience, 
And because of this sin, because of him living to ultimately serve himself, he's due punishment for his sin. And this example that we see here of Saul is the truth for all people. We are all sinners. We all look to ourselves and do not give the rightful honor to the creator of the universe. And as a result, the Bible says we receive punishment for this. And we can't find hope or deliverance or salvation from our sin, from this punishment, apart from God. We cannot find hope or deliverance or salvation by simply steeping ourselves in religious things, much like Saul did, nor can we do that through plans that we construct. As Proverbs says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is a way to death. There is hope. There is a way to deliverance. There is a way. And the king carved it out for us a thousand years later. A king whose last supper, last meal, is also recorded in the Bible. Only this king did not cower in fear, but instead took the bread and the cup at his last meal and said, this is my body which is given for you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And this king would be obedient to the Father and go to the cross and die. He did not deserve to die. But he offered himself as a substitute, as a sacrifice, and he bore the judgment of sin upon himself so that all who would believe in him could be saved, could have hope, could have deliverance, could have salvation. And the work that King Jesus did on the cross, his perfect righteousness would be applied and credited to us for all who would believe in him. And we know that this promise is certain because he rose again and showed that he had the power to conquer even death. And friends, if you have not believed in this good news, I would pray that you do so. I would pray that you would indeed have an eternal hope that only comes from the Lord, that you would be delivered from your sin. In church, I pray that this gospel has not been forgotten about. That you won't forget it in days and months and years to come. I pray that you remind yourself of this message every day because it is the truth and the truth of our hope, truth of our deliverance and salvation. And it's because of this truth, the truth of the work on the cross, that we can say this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. And when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. Let's pray. And Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. And we pray 
when all around our soul does give way, that You are our hope and stay. Help us, Father, with that. May that be our anthem in life. And Father, we repent of those times where we have sought our own way, sought our own deliverance. And Father, may the Spirit help us in that regard. And Father, for those that have not believed in this wonderful good news that we can have deliverance and hope, and that Father, You would show them, open their eyes, their hearts, and their minds to the wonderful truth of the Gospel, and that they would be saved as well. For the glory of Your name, for the glory of Your kingdom, We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.